This episode is brought to you in part by The Table Podcast from the Hendricks Center at Dallas Theological Seminary. I'm Daryl Bach, one of the hosts, and I invite you to join us as we discuss issues of God and culture, which includes anything and everything. Listen on your podcast app or at dts.edu slash the table. Hey folks, this is Mike Hosper, and before we dig into the real substance of today's show, I thought I'd just share this little moment that happened when today's guest, David Dark, came in for his interview. He, um, he came into the room where we were recording, and he put on his headphones. We were doing kind of a sound check, and this little moment happened. To the side. You want it at like a 45-degree angle to your Ooh. mouth so that the— uh, Okay. Yeah. Is it too loud? It's, it doesn't feel too loud to me. Good. It's just—I mean, I could kind of do this all day the way I'm hearing my voice right now. It's nice, isn't it? I could do it all day hearing your voice, too. Oh, my gosh. It's strange. <laughs> Could you guys just leave and let me sit here and talk to myself for a while? You're almost, it's like Delilah after dark yeah. instantly. You know? It's like I've got some things I need to address myself on. I need a hard rock album. <laughs> I need to talk to myself via screamo for a while. Because <laughs> there's just some things I'm not ready to hear yet. Right. But maybe I'm ready to hear it now. Maybe you are. I actually heard a fascinating interview with the woman that is Delilah After Dark on NPR a couple okay. weeks ago. I'm trying to remember what the show was. She said that her show came about because she needed it. Sure. And she needed she needed to have people to talk to to cure her own loneliness. Yeah. And so it was almost like a wounded healer narrative. Sure. Well, everything is. Yeah, it's true. Not, not always healing, but probably everything comes from some kind of wound. Yeah, for sure. Hmm. Now first he sings, and then he goes And what it means, it's hard to know From Harbor Media, you're listening to Cultivated, conversations about faith and work. My guest today is David Dark. David's a professor at Belmont University in Nashville. He's a writer and a cultural critic. He's written for MTV.com, Pitchfork, Paste, Comment Magazine, Books and Culture, and more. More than anyone I know, he has a way of seeing faith and religious ideas permeating the world around us. We'll talk about that and how we came to see the world that way today on our show. Family discussions on my dad's side could involve um, lengthy debates about whether or not if you were in a shipwreck and you ended up on an island and there was nothing there but a Bible, which you had never seen before, and you started reading that Bible and you came to the conclusion that baptism might be a good idea, but you could only baptize yourself, would it count? Is the kind of question that would happen between my dad and his brothers. David Dark grew up in Nashville in a house where, as you can tell, Christian faith was taken very, very seriously. So a whole lot of Bible going up. When I was baptized, it was under heavy insinuation that if something was to happen to me before I was baptized, all bets were off. I mean, there was a lot of fear involved in that, but I value and I am appreciative of those many moments as a young person when the crackers and grape juice would pass by 
And I had to look at the person holding them and kind of shake my head, like, not me. It was awkward, but it was also, I think it cultivated within me some kind of deep realization that this is an activity, this is a community, this is a way of being in the world that you get to choose over and over again. Um, I want that for my children. I don't want the fear. I don't want to hand that down to them. But I do want them to feel the ethical pinch, the social pinch of actually having a go at seeking first God's kingdom and righteousness in all things. When you meet David and when you talk with him, there's sort of a whiplash effect. He's as quick to quote Captain Spock from Star Trek or the musician Beck as he is theologians like John Milbank or N.T. Wright. And that's because for David, these people don't live in different worlds. There's a unity to them. And David approaches them both with a similar reverence and joy. It's a reverence he discovered when he was still very young, and it's a joy that he's always wanted to share. I wanted to be an actor, still want to be an actor. Thought about being a lawyer. My dad was a lawyer, a journalist, an investigative reporter, all of those things. A masked vigilante, I'm sure, somewhere along the way. But I I often, when I'm trying to come up with what our friend uh, Gregory Allen Thornberry often comes down to what is your origin story. Much of it comes back to my love for movies. Mm -hmm. I remember seeing, I'm 46, so I remember seeing Raiders of the Lost Ark in a movie theater by myself. Yeah, in those days I would get dropped off. My parents were great, but it was just a, I'd be left at shopping malls, that kind of thing. And I was left at um, a little twin cinema and I saw Raiders of the Lost Ark and I stepped out I didn't want to, but I had to go to the bathroom. And there was another kid in a similar situation who went to the bathroom about the same time. And we were both so moved. I couldn't have been more than 11 or 12, but so moved by what we were seeing that we noted one another's presence and said, this is really good, isn't it? Among all of the things that I wanted to be, definitely... uh, An archaeologist was in there as well. The idea of exploration, the idea of uncovering things. I feel like that was the one that got through to me in a particular way and kept going down to wanting to find a pair of glasses that looked a little like his glasses, wanting to find a Bible that could look kind of beaten up. Indiana Jones' dad, he had a little book of um, sketches of... uh, artifacts and things right. and I the I grail think diary it, yeah the grail diary there it is get it, get it back from the Nazis yeah I think I've been trying to be someone in possession of a grail diary in one way or another ever since I love imagining a wide-eyed David Dark sitting in a movie theater watching Indiana Jones imagining that someday he might grow up to be just like him and in a weird way he did Only rather than finding treasures in rainforests and deserts, he found them right in front of us on television, in movies, and in music. My 16th birthday, I began a job at a movie theater, and that was a real joy to me because I loved recommending films. I loved telling people, oh, goodness, you're going to, it's a tough one, it's a weird one, but it's for you, this strange film. And, um, I think my teaching vocation might have largely come out of that because I would sit my friends down to sit through particular films, Twilight Zone episodes, 
Star Trek episodes in an effort to get a particular kind of conversation going. Out of that, you have mixtapes, and I made lots of them. I um, used to say long before I pursued graduate education that I had a PhD in mixtapes. I feel like I'm really good at it. But that desire to share, that desire to be a, a book club with others. I, I had a book club long before I got somebody to pay me to teach high school English. This may seem like a bit of a stretch, but I often, I often think of Eminem, who in a candid moment said that hip-hop was his one way of being social. He tried others. He maybe still tries others, but he feels most alive and heard when he loses himself in the music, to quote that one song. And I think that the teaching, sitting together with people and discussing words, whether it's poems or lyrics or lines from films or scripture, that is my um, love language. That's what I enjoy doing. He went to college in Nashville, and shortly afterward, he started working part-time at the Art House, which was a project started by Charlie Peacock. Charlie's a musician and a record producer. He's worked with everyone from Amy Grant to Switchfoot to the Civil Wars. So the Art House was his effort to bring young artists together to help stir imaginations and to think about how their faith might shape their work. David worked there to help them figure out programming, what kind of stuff they might do, what kind of discussions they might host, and how they might learn and stir the pot together. And I said, well, I'd really like to do something on The Simpsons. And we advertised it, and there were those who came thinking that this person, me, was going to explain why no one should watch The Simpsons. And it was funny because we watched an episode, I start talking, and about halfway through, a woman raised her hand and said, okay, I think I was confused on what this was going to be about. But beautifully, she was to a deep degree converted. Um, she had brought her son in a kind of, this man's going to explain why we need not argue about this anymore. There will be no Simpsons viewing in our home. But I think, I think we, we turned it a little bit for her. So out of that, um, there was a guy named Dwight Ozard who worked for the Prism magazine, Evangelicals for Social Action, Ron Sider's publication. And he said, what do you have for this magazine? And I put together, um, there was a Malcolm Muggeridge, William F. Buckley interview in which Muggeridge was talking about human imperfections, human loss, human tragedy, and the pretense of moral perfection, the pretense of deep confidence. And he said that the gargoyles on the steeple, the steeple and the gargoyle, gargoyle is there laughing at human pretension, even as the steeple is trying to reach up to the heavens. So I wrote this article, The Steeple and the Gargoyle, and it was all about why The Simpsons is amazing. I don't know if I used the word prophetic in there, but definitely a kind of righteous satire in more ways than one. And I ended up doing a cornerstone talk, the Japuza Jesus People USA Festival that used to happen. A, a beautiful thing I want to say real quick is one of the last times I went, there was a um, Christian peacemakers booth on one side, which is Shane Claiborne type stuff. And across from that booth was an army recruitment booth. <laughs> and it's like, that's what you had at Quarterstone. Yeah. That was the mixed bag. First, that detail that army booth across from the peacemakers booth is the kind of thing that David seems to notice all the time. Second, in his first book, Everyday Apocalypse, he quotes this discussion between Malcolm Muggeridge and William F. Buckley. Here's what Muggeridge had to say about the gargoyle. He's laughing at the inadequacy of man, the pretensions of man, the absolute preposterous gap between his aspirations and his performance. 
which is the eternal comedy of the human life, and will be so till the end of time, you see. David writes this, Till the end of time, this is where Buckley, like a great many of us, can hardly help but hesitate. But the alternative, a worldview that allows for some finalized perfectibility of human nature in the here and now, the steeple without the gargoyle, has proven hopelessly off, even dangerous, and we all know it. Something of this sensibility arises as we view The Simpsons. We can immediately find ourselves standing before a world of outlandish incongruity and rubbery realism. These wide-eyed, mostly yellow, doughy-looking bears of the human image are as likely to attack each other as they are to burst forth in song. They know joy and sorrow. They are seized by both grief and glee. And the further they defy the limits of decorum, the more we feel confronted by an honesty that feels no need to cater to our categories and prejudices. What David sees in The Simpsons is that their absurdity is actually our own lives writ large. He says, we take in comedy with this false sense of security. The way of mirth demands that we look hard and happily for our own reflection. We're delightfully disarmed by the sight because for once, we weren't preparing to defend ourselves. In the process, we momentarily occupy a kind of prejudice-free zone where we're not inclined to prejudge anyone. We expect these characters to have very serious problems like we do. Without them, there would be no context for their triumphs, their tragedies, or their tenderness. We become more humane when we see our less admirable qualities reflected in others, and note the mutuality. This law of lightheartedness, when carried into the everyday, has the power to cure, or very likely prevent altogether, many an interpersonal quandary. His article about The Simpsons was well-received, and it ultimately led to writing the book I just quoted from, Everyday Apocalypse. It's a book where he looks at The Simpsons, Radiohead, U2, the Coen brothers, and more, and he reads them like apocalyptic literature, exploring how they might reveal transcendent truths in subtle ways. Like the book of Daniel or the book of Revelation, he wants to see them as poems and images that hint and provoke, that reveal that there's something else going on in the world than we might think or see. I've been reading a lot of William Stringfellow, Walter Wink, a lot of N.T. Wright, a lot about apocalyptic literature. Oh, goodness, I'll, I should mention the Left Behind series was out around this same time. And uh, a little a little quip in the mix that could be kind of funny. The more I thought about the Left Behind series, the more I thought about Apocalypse, the more I thought about the spirit of Antichrist as I was coming to understand it. I had a moment, a little retreat, where I got to meet N.T. Wright. Just a quick note on this. N.T. Wright is one of the more important theologians of this generation. He's written massive books on the life of Jesus and the meaning of the cross and the gospel, and particular to this discussion, the meaning of the resurrection and the book of Revelations. Wright argues that an interpretation like, say, the literalism of the Left Behind series misses the point. The point is not one day the earth will go to hell in a handbasket, but don't worry, God will take us all out of it first. Rather, he wants us to see that the hope for the church is in the resurrection of the dead and the restoration of all things. It's an emphasis that calls for greater concern for living flourishing Christian lives in the here and now. Okay, back to David's story. And I said, just to see what he would say, you know, wouldn't it be funny if it turned out that the Left Behind series was the Antichrist? And Wright looked at me without smiling and said, you know, you, you have something there. <laughs> I mean, he, he wasn't rubber stamping that assessment, but um, that which would distract us from living, say, the Sermon on the Mount and get us to mostly think of our um, faith identity like a secret password that helps us escape eternal torment rather than a lived um, 
existence, life before death as well as life after death. He had a point. But so through a lot of N.T. Wright, a lot of N.T. Wright on Apocalypse, I began to note that with the genre of apocalyptic, I had a way of affirming all kinds of things. The Matrix, Truman Show, music of Beck, Flannery O'Connor, lots of people had already described her work as apocalyptic. But from there, it was just explaining um, my understanding of apocalypse, drawing a lot from G.B. Caird's book. hope I'm pronouncing his name right. He has a book on um, Revelation. And um, yeah, the book ended up being everything that I was into at the time through the lens of this idea that was kind of new to me. As we talked, David told a story that I think gets at how he tends to approach these things. A graduate student came up and said, I really like what you're doing. What's your methodology? And I'd never heard the word methodology before. And I said, well, I think I just write about what I'm interested in. I take the things that move me for some reason and I explain. I guess now I would say I try to bear witness to the witness I perceive in the Kendrick Lamar album or the Coen brother film, that kind of thing. But Everyday Apocalypse was the beginning of that. And there's a sense in which, though I use different language to be the umbrella of the thing, I feel like I've kind of written the same book over and over again. Hmm. What I love about all of your writing is that you seem to be able to find the resonances in Mm -hmm. these different cultural artifacts that are operating just below the level of maybe consciousness or imagination. There's something about them that's drawing us in, something about them that we love. And we might not be able to totally put our finger on it, but Mm -hmm. you you help to do that. I'll note that a friend, um, a youth minister friend, got in a car with one of the kids in his youth group, and the kid was playing something very loud and almost incoherent. Definitely a lot of rage involved in it. It might have been Slipknot or something like that. And um, as soon as they got in the car and the kid realized it was on, he immediately turned it off. My youth minister friend said, what was that? And he said, I don't know. I mean, he did what admit what it was. And he acknowledged that, he would, let's say it was Slipknot. I don't know, it Slipknot. And immediately the young person said, I don't really listen to the lyrics, um, which isn't true. <laughs> it really isn't true. He said, I don't really listen to the lyrics. But my friend said, well, you should. I mean, if if you love it, you're going to want to follow up on it. And he was trying to challenge the fella's um, knee-jerk defensiveness. I love this, but I'm sure I shouldn't love it. With a kind of, well, what's the information in the fact that you love it? Maybe it does address something that needs to be addressed. And maybe it really is awesome, this thing that you're taking in. And, of course, the things we take in might speak to us at one point in our lives and not speak to us so much before. But I think something that I am trying to do, and I teach uh, faith and pop culture class, and we met yesterday, and I was trying to lean in hard on the fact of what you're into need not be presumed a shameful thing. Um, You love it, perhaps for very solid reasons. A while back, I started noticing that David would post an article or a link on Twitter, and he'd add the hashtag liturgy. It seemed like it was a little project, a way of pointing out, as he tends to, the religious impulses behind cultural events, whether they're politics, celebrity culture, or the arts. I asked him to explain what he was getting at. Oh, what a, what a beautiful question. 
Um, I believe it was William Kavanaugh. He said something like, um, the line between religion and politics was not discovered. It was invented. And that was in the context of him letting me know for the first time that liturgy means work of the people. So like religion, like tradition, like liturgy, um, these are abstractions in some sense, but kind of like the word impact even, which we hear so often. I heard somebody on the radio saying that word impact. It's like we're speaking of the Holy Grail. Well, impact is not a virtue in itself. A bombing is impactful as the word goes. And neither are liturgy, tradition, or religion virtues in themselves. They just name cultural forms. So liturgy as the work of the people has been really helpful to me in doing this thing that I'm always trying to do, which is erase that line in which we want to say, this over here is my worship, this is my faith, this is my personal private relationship with Jesus. And this over here is just what we have to do in the name of national security. (laughs) Or this over here is business. Sorry, not personal business. I understand these divisions. I use them myself sometimes, but they are unworthy of an undivided life. And they are brought down again and again by everything we find in, in the biblical witness. So I'm being playful when, I, am, I guess I've always tried to be playful in one way or another, but there's hardly much other than, say, a stalactite, which is not the work of the people. So a stalactite I'm not, or a stalagmite, I'm not going to call those liturgy. But just about everything else, I think we put ourselves back on the moral hook, the aesthetic hook, the artful hook, when we note all of these things that are the work of our hands, that we are all too quick to view as some kind of inevitable process, especially when it involves human sacrifices. Um, we're, we're too quick to let ourselves off that hook. I'm too quick to let myself off that hook. And I'm trying to put myself and others on that hook, both for the sake of beauty and for the sake of common decency, over and over again. David wants to make sure that we're paying attention to the ways we try to separate our religious life from the rest of life. And he wants to strip away those barriers. I asked him, if someone were to say to him, okay, I get it. How do I get better? How do I get to a more integrated way of seeing and a more integrated way of living? So for me, part of getting better on that is to not let a category like secular or any label serve to stand in the way of viewing other people in their infinite complexity and their infinite value as bearers of God's image. I resist calling people or any cultural offering secular because I I believe that the world is charged with the grandeur of God. And I believe that every human being is in deep relationship with God, even if that person doesn't believe in God. I like to note with my students that we can have things called worship services. But if we call them worship services and honestly believe that there's a start and stop time on our worship, as in worship service concluded, now I'm just going to go out and live my life. That's a perverse and tragic way of viewing your own heartbeat, your own liturgies, 
your own work life. And of course, my big word on that is witness, because my witness isn't what I say I believe or what I pretend to believe. It's what I do. It's my entire, it's the sum of my entire output. And witness is helpful as well in speaking of the witness of Radiohead or the witness of James Joyce or the witness of Oprah Winfrey, because witness goes beyond these questions of who believes what. And of course, the real question of who believes what actually can't be answered apart from what we do. They'll know us by their fruit, as Jesus tells us. David's newest book is called Life's Too Short to Pretend You're Not Religious. In it, these themes get drawn out broadly, looking at how our whole lives are shaped by religious impulses. David writes, If what we believe is what we see, is what we do, is who we are, then there's no getting away from religion. We all want to know who we are, where and how we fit in, and what our lives might yet mean. And in this sense, religion might be the best word we have for seeing, naming, confessing, and really waking up to what we're after and all we do of becoming aware of what's going on in our minds. Whenever you say religious impulse or religious experience, I try to imagine an impulse or an experience that I don't think of as religious, and I I can't, for whatever that's worth. For me, it's kind of like saying cultural experience, cultural impulse, culture. And, you know, sometimes we speak of cultural engagement. I'm going to go engage the culture to which I always want to say, too late, you're soaking in it. Wendell Berry has sometimes said, when people speak of the environment, he says, I challenge you to tell me where your own body and the environment, where it stops. Try breath, there's no dividing line. I'm not trying to lift up the adjective exactly. I'm not saying let's all call ourselves religious from now on. That's not the goal of the book. Part of the goal of the book, though, is to challenge that habit we have of using the word religious, especially when it's a label that we use to diminish someone else's witness. So-and-so's religious, meaning they're a nut, (laughs) or they're dealing with some mad view of the world, whereas I am secular or humanist or merely rational. So if that one of the goals behind it, one of the arguments behind it, is that we shouldn't call someone religious as if they're dealing with some problem that we ourselves has overcome, have overcome. Because the problem of how to be true, how to be honest, how to be undivided is a problem that we're all um, getting to deal with. That seems to me to sort of sum up your whole project, right? Mm, yeah. Um, trying to, I mean, would you say that's what you hope to, to leave people with? Like what your influence over the next 10, 20 years yeah. of your work? Is that is that your, maybe I should just say, what are you aiming at? But, and let you describe it. Yes, well, it is, I'll bring, I mean, it feels silly. What are you aiming at? Well, let me quote Wendell Berry. I feel like I'm losing my own identity in the, the Barry Project, but even the Barry Project is the William Blake Project, is the the Bible's project, it seems to me, is every sacred tradition's project is to seek wholeness 
and transparency and honesty and fullness of joy in all that we're up to. And um, rethinking the word religion the way I'm trying to do with this book is definitely at the um, heart of that. But I do note that I'm in it for beauty. I want to think more beautifully. I want to be a beautiful person. I want to behave beautifully. And when I say I want to behave beautifully, I think of the civil rights era. I think of the beloved community. I think of the Sermon on the Mount. I think the Sermon on the Mount is a text, is a guidebook about how to respond beautifully to the aggressor, to the person who owes you money, to the poor person in your midst, all that kind of thing. Maybe I'm in it for beauty, the maximizing of awareness of our own beauty and the beauty of God's world. And, and behind that, too, seems to be, again, looking at you the way you've approached it requires paying attention yeah. much more at a much more deep level. Yeah, I guess it's Simone Weil who said that unmixed attention is prayer. It does come down to attention. And the operative phrase throughout this latest book, attention collection, we all have one. We all have these memories, these lines, these images that stay with us. So why not hold it out with open hands, find out why what's there is there, and kind of, um, whether it's, it's wounds or joys or fears or hopes, to kind of conduct ourselves um, as human beings among human beings with our language, with our, um, all of our offerings. David recently reviewed Chance the Rapper's new mixtape for MTV.com. It's a record that blends hip-hop, rap, and gospel, and Chance unabashedly talks about his faith in ways that confuse both Christian and non-Christian audiences. But David sees no problem here. He writes, There's a boldness here that might challenge popular conceptions of piety. But Chance's faith in a God who accepts every emotion and welcomes every form of candor and good humor is every bit biblical. His expression defies marketing and genre, but this too is a blessed thing. The divisions of sacred and secular dissolve upon contact with the way a heart really works. But we've already received that wisdom from one luminary after another, right? Prince knew it. Johnny Cash knew it. We forget so easily. True witness knows no division. There's a pine warbler sitting on a hollow limb. He seems to have the whole morning out right in front of him. And everything he sings from the branch that he's sitting on, it seems to hush the leaves and the colors all around. Now first he sings and then he goes. And what it means, it's hard to know. Thanks for listening. Be sure to check out our show notes. We'll link a few of David's articles as well as his books. Also, help us spread the word. Share on social media. Leave a review at the iTunes store. That actually really helps. And if you really want to help, go to harbormedia.com slash donate and chip in a few bucks so we can keep telling stories. Speaking of stories, stay tuned for a preview of our next episode. But first, this show was written, produced, and edited by me. It was mixed by Mark Owens at resonaterecordings.com. Our theme song is by Roman Candle. Our soundtrack is also by Roman Candle and also by Dan Phelps. You can find links to their music in the show notes. Special thanks to Scott Slusher and Lachlan Coffey. Daniela Rueda is our administrator. Our logos were designed by Chris Bennett. 
you can donate and support our show, in case you missed that a moment ago, at harbormedia.com slash donate. Uh, we'll be taking next week off for Thanksgiving and also to kind of get caught up on production. But in the meantime, you can listen to our archives if you haven't already and help us spread the word. We'll be back on December 1st when our guest will be poet and rapper Propaganda. You know, it's not like I'm going to end institutionalized racism on my next record. You know what I'm saying? Like, that's not going to happen, you know, but I can move the needle. You know what I'm saying? I'll tell you right now, it's a pretty fun conversation. See you in a couple weeks. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I'd welcome that. No, there's no explaining whatever I have that is together apart from the Sarah Mason. This episode was brought to you in part by The Compelled Podcast, which uses gripping, immersive storytelling to bring Christian testimonies to life. Listen to missionaries, addicts, martyrs, and more who have seen Jesus at work in unbelievable ways. Listen on your podcast app or compelledpodcast.com.